morning. Isn't it nice to have the pastor introduce you? I was talking with Pastor Steve last week, and I said, what's it like to come up carrying your pulpit? Because I had always thought, when everybody comes up and says, is that like carrying your cross? And I thought, well, no, it's not. It's a privilege, and it's an honor to be here and share with you this morning. A businessman boarded a plane and made his way to his seat, and he greeted his companions. On, the, on his right side, there is a, a middle-aged lady, and on his right side, his other side, there was a young girl, and she was sitting in the aisle seat. After the flight took off, he began a conversation with the little girl, and uh, she appeared to be about maybe eight years old. He had a daughter eight years old as well. And he found it strange that this little girl was all by herself, eight years old, all by herself. And so he decided to keep an eye on her just to make sure that everything was okay. But an hour into the flight, the plane suddenly began to experience some extreme turbulence. So the pilot came on board and and asked to the PA system and told everybody to fasten the seatbelts and to remain calm. And of course, people started started crying out. A lot of people were praying intensely, and um, the man was sweating and he was clenching his seat as tightly as he could. Meanwhile, the little girl was sitting quietly beside him in her seat, her hands in her lap. Incredibly, she didn't seem to be concerned at all. Then just as suddenly as it began, everything stopped, turbulence stopped, and the pilot came on a couple of minutes later to apologize for the bumpy ride. And then also to say, okay, we're ready to land. And as the plane began the descent, the man said to the little girl, you know, you are just a little girl. And yet, I've never met a braver person in all my life. While all the other adults were all uh, anxious, you remained calm while the rest of us were so afraid. And he said, well, why did you do that? And she said to him, looking him in the eyes, my father is the pilot, and he's taking me home. Well, we've all experienced turbulence of some kind in our lives. And what we haven't experienced, we've probably heard about. We've heard reports about uh, daily, about probably a shooting here, something else there, diseases, and uh, crime, terrorism, depression, anxiety. There's a lot of turbulence that goes on in our lives, in inner lives and in outer lives as well. But this morning we're continuing our series on the names of God, and the name of God we're going to be looking for strikes right at the heart of turmoil and and turbulence. And his name is Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Shalom. And it is mentioned only once in the Bible, and it is found in the book of Judges, chapter 6. I'd like us to read together, if you would stand, in Judges chapter 6, and we'll be looking, reading from 1 to verse 24. Judges 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midian, a power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. 
Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on all the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the land of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abdusrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and his broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the yoke. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. You may be seated. As you could imagine, Yahweh Shalom, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. There are three realities in this account that I'd like to focus on this morning. And the first reality is the reality of Gideon's situation, what's happening to Gideon. Second reality is the reality of God's revelation in response to Gideon's situation. The third reality is the reality of Gideon's transformation in response to God's revelation to him. So we have Gideon here, and he is in the midst of an incredible mess, a huge crisis, actually a crisis on two levels. This is the reality of Gideon's situation. 
two levels and a crisis in each level. The first level of Gideon's situation was an outward circumstantial crisis. The Midianites were coming in, invading the land and ravishing the, com- the country, taking all their goods, taking everything away from them. This is a circumstantial crisis. But the deeper level uh, of the crisis was an inward heart crisis. And that we see when the unnamed prophet comes and says, the problem is not a, a cultural problem, it's not a political problem, it's not a financial problem, but it's a spiritual problem. They had ignored God and his law. And so because of this crisis, heart crisis, there was no peace in the land. So what do we have here? We have a situation where there's no outward circumstantial peace. We don't have inward peace, heart peace. And what is interesting about this name Yahweh Shalom is that it comes up right in the middle of the loss of peace. There was no peace at all, right in the middle of turmoil. And it shouldn't surprise us, though. The blacker the situation, the brighter the words and work of God on our behalf. And also, God always meets us just as we are where we are. So I'd like to ask you this morning, first of all, where are you this morning? What is your situation? What is happening in your life? Perhaps today you're facing a critical situation, a situation you can't control. And you have called out to the Lord for help, as just as the Israelites did. And we need to remember when we call out for help, that God doesn't always answer immediately. Many times his answer tends to unfold. It takes time to unfold. We can't crawl out to God like we would to Alexa or Siri and always have an immediate response. God is there, yes, but he doesn't respond like Alexa or Siri's, like making... Alexa, part of your day as simple as asking a question, which is Amazon's word. But I, knew, no, but I do know from experience that when God is all you have, you will find that he is all you need. Or you can put it in a different way. You never know God is all you need until he becomes all you have. I wonder if any of us are feeling in that situation this morning. Israel did, and they called out to God and asked God to help them. They realized it. But unfortunately, their prayer was their last resort, not their first response. And Israel seemed to have that as a habit. But let me interject, interject here that our difficult situations may not always be able to, may not always trace back to a lack of obedience or a lack of trust in God. After all, we do live in a broken world. But all difficulties do plow up the fallow ground of our lives. A.W. Tozer had a quote that I, I really like. He says, Miracles follow the plow. Miracles follow the plow. Difficulties are like the sharp, steel point of the plow that bites into the shallow, uh, the fallow ground of our lives. It hurts. It reveals things as it pulls up the, the earth underneath. And our inner person is plowed up and exposed. No longer protected by whatever we had to protect ourselves. But plowed ground loosens the soil, 
so that seeds can be planted, grow, and bear fruit. And that's why miracles follow the plow. Now let's look at the second reality, the reality of God's revelation. This is God's response to uh, Gideon's situation. Have you ever wondered what the significance of God's word to Moses was? And other places in the Bible it talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? This sequence of words is also mentioned in other parts of the Bible. And I believe he's saying, I am the God Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called their God. Not somebody else's God. Not their family's God. Their God. They had experienced God in a personal way as he had revealed himself to them. So God was telling Moses, I have called you so that you could come to know me in the same way that they did. A personal relationship with God. In Italy we talked often about the difference between a religion and a personal relationship with God. Well, Moses and these men had a personal relationship with God because they experienced God in their lives. And isn't this the kind of relationship we want our children to have? Even ourselves, we have this longing for us to have this relationship with God or to grow in this relationship with God. But going back to our children, we don't want our children to see God as just the God of their parents, do we? Or the God of their family, or the God of their church. We want children or children to have this experience of God, to be able to testify and say, I have experienced God in this situation. I've experienced God in that situation, and he's real to me. Or, I trusted God and he came through. Isn't that great when your children say that? They've experienced God. They have that experience of God. It's God is becoming their God, not just the God of their parents. Or we like to hear them say, I trusted God and he came through. Or I sought the Lord, as David said, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. When our children say that, this is what I experienced from God, I say, good, God is at work in their hearts. Because God is their God, not just our God, not just the God of their parents. And it's this kind of relationship that we're talking about here. This is the kind of relationship we mean when we say the reality of God's revelation. We're not talking about revelation, something outside of Scripture. We're talking about God revealing himself to to them. And God's revelation came uh, came to Gideon. And let's look more at the God's revelation to Gideon. And we find that in verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace, Yahweh Shalom. So we know that God is going to show show peace to Gideon and to Israel in that time, but did you notice that Gideon was afraid of God in those words. God said, do not be afraid, you shall not die. So God knew that Gideon was afraid of God. And he had good reason to be afraid of God. Because God is pure holiness, and man is thorough sinfulness. And they don't coexist. They never mix. Sin is to holiness as a field of dry grass is to fire. 
fire always consumes the dry grass, and that's holiness, God's holiness. God's holiness always consumes sin, and that's why God punishes, because that's his nature. So God said, you shall not die. They never coexist. And often we try to have one foot, one place, another foot with God. But really, they never will be reconciled. The Holy Spirit here inspired Scripture and was pointing at a future time when God could say these words to anyone who accepts Christ as their personal Savior. He would be saying, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. That's for us today as well. Peace be to you. You shall not die. The Holy Spirit is at work today. If you understand and believe that as a sinner you deserve to die and that Christ took your punishment in your place and thus forgave your sins and you have, for, you have accepted this by faith, you will have peace with God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You shall not die. So God says to you this morning, or to us, any person who is seeking Christ, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And there is comfort that I find in 1 John 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. What do you do when you have a holy God who consumes sin? Our hearts are not at rest. And so what we have here, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence because we have this peace before God. But what does shalom mean? Yahweh shalom. We've all heard of that word in some context, but what does it mean? Shalom is a greeting word like hello or goodbye. If we were in a Jewish congregation, this morning when you came in, you probably would have said shalom to somebody. And when you left, you probably would have said shalom. It reminds me of the Italian word that we used to hear so often, ciao. It's like, how? How are you? Shalom, same thing. Or ciao, goodbye. You know, shalom, same thing. But it's a greeting word. It's more than a greeting word, though. In Hebrew, it means so much more. Shalom is a cluster of words that mean wholeness, completeness, wellness, well-being. One author I read writes, let's put the English word peace next to the Hebrew word shalom and compare the two. That's a little like asking a 90-pound weekly to stand next to an incredible hulk. Our idea of peace is so much thinner than the full-bodied meaning of shalom. When we talk about peace, we often mean a state of calm or an absence of conflict. But the biblical idea of peace is much richer. In fact, it bears a striking similarity to the biblical idea of paradise. A place where we are completely at peace with God, ourselves, and others. Instead of sickness, healing. Instead of brokenness, wholeness. Instead of poverty, prosperity. Instead of danger, safety. Instead of death, life. That's true shalom. That's true peace. It's not just the absence of conflict. 
it's much broader than that. If you've ever been to a symphonic orchestra or symphony, and you, you'll remember that the sounds coming from the orchestra from the stage is not very peaceful. Everybody is tuning up their instruments, and uh, everybody is making sure that they remember, remember the piece that they had practiced for so many hours. It's total chaos. But then the conductor comes in, and everything stops. It's silent. Instead of discord, instead of chaos, he raises his baton, and the musician's submission to his direction results in beautiful harmony. That's shalom. Shalom is not an orchestra where each member does his own thing. That's chaos. It's, neither is it silence. A silent orchestra is not shalom. Shalom is not quietness. But an orchestra where every musician is playing his or her part in submission to the conductor, that's shalom. And that's the only way we can have peace with God, with ourselves, and with others. And I might add, it may sound strange, but peace with creation that God has created. Eden is a picture of shalom. When everything was in submission to the conductor who led it in the symphonic, there was symphonic harmony in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. They broke that. There was no more shalom. And we still live in a world without shalom. We still live chaos. And so when you look at creation, you look at people, the turbulence around us, and you see what's going on around us, we realize that we are in dire straits. There is no shalom without God. But returning to Gibeon's experience, God was about to deliver Israel. But first he wanted them to understand that shalom that they needed, which would be heart peace, was deeper and more important than the shalom they wanted, circumstantial peace, deliverance from the ravages of the Midianites. And how often we seek to change our circumstances to have peace when really the real issue is our heart and peace. They wanted only circumstantial shalom, not heart shalom, but Yahweh shalom wants both, circumstances and the heart. And David had it right when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He didn't say, Change my circumstances. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So we might pause here and reflect. Is there an area, an attitude, or a habit, or a thought pattern that God has been speaking to you about in the last couple of weeks, last couple of days, that has not yet been given over to Yahweh Shalom, and therefore hinders you from experiencing Shalom? God wants our hearts. When he has our hearts, there is Shalom in our lives. The third and last reality we have in this passage is Gideon's transformation. This is Gideon's response to God's revelation. First we had Gideon's situation. Then we had God's response, revelation to Gideon's situation. Now we have Gideon's response to God's revelation. When one gets to know God on a personal level, everything changes. The New Testament equivalent that I find to Shalom is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, 
are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. The longer we gaze on Christ, the longer we gaze on his words, the longer we gaze on his works, the more like him we will become and the more shalom there will be. But let's look deeper into his reality and Gideon's response, his transformation. There are about five or six examples that show us how Gideon changed, how he was transformed in this story, and we haven't read the full story uh, this morning. But I would like to focus on just one, and I chose it because it's the most well-known and because I think Gideon sometimes gets a bad rap when we talk about him as a doubter. He was a doubter, but there's more to the story. Gideon had some doubts and insecurities about the outcome of the battle. He asked God to give him a sign. He even set the parameters with God. He lays down a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and he asks God to wet it with dew while leaving everything else uh, dry around it. God did that. Then he asked for the opposite the next night, and God did that as well. Some have called Gideon the Old Testament equivalent to Doubting Thomas. So we have Doubting Gideon, Doubting Thomas, the Doubting Twins, if you like. But reading the story, we see that Gideon carries out God's instruction time and time again. He didn't even protest when God whittled his army down from 23,000 men to 300 men. He was following God's instructions. He had changed, nor did he challenge God when God told him to divide his 300 men into three companies and to blow their trumpets with their right hand and break the jars and grasp their torches in their left hands. And God won the battle because Gideon had submitted to God. So when you meet God for real, everything changes. When God comes and reveals himself to you, you are transformed. If you aren't transformed, then you probably haven't met God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, the two men on the Emmaus Road, and the Apostle Paul experienced meeting God, the God of heaven and earth, and they were changed. And that is the kind of change that we all long for, and the change that we'd like to see even in our children, in our church, and in our world as well. In our conclusion, let's look back and see if there's a take-home that God has given to us. As Gideon looked at his situation, we see God taking him where he was at, burdened with two crises in his life, outward circumstantial crisis and the inward heart crisis. Then we see God's revelation in response to Israel's situation. In the middle of the turbulent situation, God shows himself and reveals himself as the God of peace. Yahweh, Yahweh Shalom. Finally, we see Gideon's transformation in response to God's revelation as he follows God's instructions. And God gave him everything he needed to fulfill his mandate. Now, these three realities can be realities and are realities in our lives as well. And there almost seems to be a sequence here. Our situation, God's revelation, and our transformation. When we come to God and present a situation to him, call out to him, he responds. The question is, do we hear him? And if we hear him, do we follow him? And then, of course, there's the transformation. So I have three questions that I I would like to leave with you 
to consider afterwards, what is my situation? And then this question is key. Am I seeking God to give me peace from my circumstances, or am I seeking to give him my heart in the middle of my circumstances? There is a difference. Second question, how is God revealing his presence to me in response to my situation? God is always speaking. He is never silent. Even as we hear in in nature, even to us, maybe through scripture, a podcast, a book, a member of the body of the, the body, a member of the church, the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't always send us an angel to appear to us as he did to Gideon, but he has other means. So the big question is, how is God revealing his presence to me? Not, is he revealing, but how is he really revealing his presence to us? Because God is there. He is always communicating with us. The third and last one is question is, how is God's revelation of himself transforming my life now? Is there a different perspective that I have? Maybe a, a different motivation? Maybe different reactions and responses to difficult situations? How is God transforming my life? These three, like I mentioned before, are like a sequence. And doesn't always happen in that order necessarily. But logically, to communicate a truth, that's what we see. We have a situation. God reveals himself to us as we seek him. Do we take enough time to seek him? And then he, re- he transforms us. 